Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Later this hour, we will meet one of Iowa's preeminent cheesemongers, and we will learn the sweet family story behind a new Lynn County nature preserve. But first, we know that for the last 20 years, local newsrooms have been hemorrhaging jobs, and a lot of local newspapers have ceased to exist. Different communities and organizations have come up with some unique ways to support local journalism. Along those lines, there was a surprising announcement from the University of Iowa's Daily Iowan newspaper this week. The Daily Iowan has purchased two small-town weekly newspapers near Iowa City, the Mount Vernon Lisbon Sun and the Solon Economist. They bought them from the Dubuque-based Woodward Communications, and the Daily Iowan will be fully responsible for the papers, starting with the February 8th editions. Melissa Tully is a professor and director of the University of Iowa School of Journalism and Mass Communication. She's here to help us understand this decision and talk about what the future holds for these papers and UI students. Hello, Melissa. Hello. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you so much for being here. And the Daily Iowan is not the first university newspaper to do this, but it's still pretty unusual. How did this idea come about? Yeah, this is definitely unusual, particularly for the student um, nonprofit. So the owner of the of the Daily Iowan Student Publications, Inc., is actually going to own and operate these two papers. So this idea came about um, really this past summer. And so it's been in the works for a couple of months. Uh, but going back further than that, um, we, so myself as the director of the journalism school and Jason Brumman, the publisher of the Daily Iowan, had been talking for a while about uh, engaging and partnering with community papers, because we know, as as you described, that's a huge need in, a, in an area where our students can actually get some hands-on experience and serve communities. So we had been talking about this for a long time, and then this idea and opportunity to actually purchase these papers uh, came about. And so Woodward Communications reached out um, to, to Jason. And so over the past, you know, six months or so, we've been... Th- talking about and developing this this idea. Help me understand a little bit better of how the Daily Iowan operates. You mentioned that they're part of the Iowa City-based nonprofit corporation Student Publications Incorporated. So that entity is what owns the Daily Iowan. Yes, that's right. So the Daily Iowan is, you know, the student paper of, of the University of Iowa, and it serves Iowa City and Coralville and the surrounding area. So the staff is made up of entirely students of the University of Iowa. But there's a professional publisher and some professional staff as well. And so Student Publications, Inc., which, as you said, um, is that nonprofit entity, they are separate and independent from the University of Iowa, but they have a, um, a, a sort of an affiliation agreement. So that's how the, that's how they work. And so I actually serve on the board of directors uh, for, for them as well. So as as my role as a, as a professor. Um, so if you look at their uh, their makeup, it's essentially a board that it can, that consists of um, faculty from from the university across all kinds of departments. So it's actually quite interesting. You know, we have professors from math and history and all other units who are on the board and students as well as alumni. So it's a really active and engaged board. But the the nonprofit itself is what manages and runs the paper. So they have their own budget, all, all of that kind of stuff. Now, this has been in the works for a while. And the idea is that there will be no 
interruption in the publishing schedule. There are staff people who work on these two papers. What happens to them? They are all keeping their jobs. So they were uh, found out last week um, that this transaction was happening, and they were told that they are all staying on, and several, I think maybe even all of them, have received raises. And the goal is to keep the professional staff in place so that they can continue to serve uh, these communities. They know the communities well, um, and we want to make sure that that's maintained. And so the idea is to continue to run operations as normal for the next couple of weeks, maybe even the next month or two, so that um, Jason and the team at, at the DI can get a sense of, of what this is like. And then we will be adding to that to the, these uh, papers by supplementing with interns and other opportunities for students to get involved in the fall, having uh, more classes involved. But the idea is to really maintain that um, professional local staff so that they can, they can continue to uh, be really active in these papers because they are the ones who know what's going on in these communities. So we really see this as supplementing and bolstering um, what's going on and investing in community journalism because this is critical um, with the closures and layoffs at, across the country at small and large papers. Um, if there are ways that we can invest in community news, um, we want to we want to be a part of that. And they're pretty lean operations, right? <laughs> they are. Yes, they are. There's a few, very few staff uh, at both papers, and um, there is a building in Mount Vernon where the um, where the staff there work out of, and so we're also maintaining uh, that office space. So they are lean staffs right now. So uh, you know, going forward, I don't know if there'll be additional staff added or or what, but the. Um, in the in the in the current model, the professional staff that work at the Daily Iowan are also going to be contributing uh, to these papers. So we're hoping that by pulling together these entities and bringing the um, the size of the Daily Iowan uh, to bear, that it can actually help really develop uh, both of these papers. Now. The Daily Iowan is an award-winning publication. You do a lot of things beyond just uh, producing the newspaper, also with uh, digital and um, documentary film and, and all kinds of interesting things going on. How many students are involved with the Daily Iowan? Yeah, it varies quite a bit, but typically there's around 100 um, student journalists. And the, the really the cool thing about that as well is a lot of them are uh, school journalism and mass communication students. So a lot of the, there's a lot of overlap there, but not all of them. There's students who come from, you know, chemistry and theater and across uh, across campus. So it's also a way of really expanding uh, journalism beyond, you know, beyond the borders of, of of a classroom. So there's lots of student journalists um, and there's a strong and uh, vibrant uh, group of editors as well. So, so students who have been there, you know, two, three, four years, and they're really essential to, to making the paper run and to doing all those other projects that, that you just mentioned. So what will opportunities for University of Iowa students be like at these papers? What's your vision? Yeah, so we have uh, a vision of kind of rolling this out slowly, as I was mentioning, so that th there won't be any interruptions to, th to the papers. Um, but the idea is going to be to develop both internships and employment opportunities for students at these papers specifically um, so that they can do more of that community work. Uh, we also are looking forward to incorporating uh, the papers into our classes. So, for example, example, in, in many small communities, and these these are no exception, there's not a ton of government reporting or investigative reporting or really uh, the kind of work that takes time, 
people, money. And so we're hoping to invest in some of those opportunities, too, because they they deserve to be covered um, as if, you know, they have those resources. So we're thinking about developing new classes, but also incorporating um, the, the local reporting opportunities into existing courses. So those are really the big uh, the big building blocks of, of this kind of um, initiative. And then to wrap it up, we want to have research around it as well, because we know that it's going to change. So the coverage is going to change. Uh, the perception of the audience could potentially change. The feelings of the staff could change. And so there's also opportunities to do research around what what this is like. And so that's something that I think the journalism school faculty will really be interested in. As much as small town papers are in trouble, people also love their small town papers. And there's the culture of the small town paper that that can be so important. Features that have run for decades can be so important to individuals. Are there concerns that you have or pitfalls that you're hoping to avoid as you take over these papers? Yeah, and I think that's where one of the really important things about going slow at the beginning here is to get that sense. So nobody wants to go in and start changing things that are that are working well. And so I think we'll spend some time, and, and Jason's already been doing this, of talking to the employees, you know, figuring out what what is going well. But also we need to talk to community members and figure out what they like, what they don't like, you know, and sort of just casual conversations with people who live in Seoul and in Mount Vernon. There are things that they really appreciate about their coverage. You know, Solon, for example, is uh, has excellent high school sports coverage and high school sports really matter in Solon. And so obviously we want to invest in that. And that's another opportunity for students. We have lots of students who want to go into sports journalism or sports media. Well, if they can really get the opportunity to cover high school sports, do sports photography, do all of that in that environment, that's a chance to just bolster that coverage, not not take it away. And so there will be opportunities like that. Uh, We also plan to talk to colleagues and folks at other universities who have done similar um, endeavors so that we don't, you know, have the same mistakes or or, um, troubles that they did. So I I really see the next six months as that learning opportunity for for figuring out what's going to be the future of of these papers. Now, any newspaper anywhere shares a lot of material with syndicates, with the AP, etc. So is this also an opportunity to extend the reach of daily Iowan reporting and publish in these papers. Yes, absolutely. So that is one of the really cool things is that hopefully very soon, I don't maybe even in in you know an upcoming uh, issue, there will be reporting that comes directly from the from the daily Iowan. So you know the Solon is the next one of the next towns over from Iowa City and Mount Vernon's, you know, one town further than that. So really, the coverage area is is not that different. Um, So the opportunity for those papers to rely on some um, DI coverage is going to be great. We're hoping that that'll also show more um, opportunities for overlap and things that that all three communities care about. But that's that's one of the big, big immediate opportunities. And then if there are students who are really interested in this, you know, getting them into covering city, you know, city council meetings and school board and all of that from from the jump, we're not going to prevent them from doing that. So I think that opportunity is huge. And going forward, that kind of collaboration and sharing across papers in eastern Iowa, Johnson County, beyond is going to be critical. And we know that. And so could we develop a model that is um, scalable 
and that other newsrooms and news organizations can see as uh, helping to solidify local journalism um, in the state and and then beyond that, you know, really, we, we hope that this is something that is just the start of 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 these kinds of uh, partnerships, and so um, where we're really thrilled about that. Melissa, thank you so much for talking with me. Thanks so much for having me. Melissa Tully is professor and director of the University of Iowa School of Journalism and Mass Communication. The University of Iowa student newspaper, The Daily Iowan, announced this week that it has purchased and will operate two small-town weekly papers, The Mount Vernon, Lisbon Sun, and The Solon Economist. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion. The Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. In about 15 minutes, we will meet the woman who donated the land for Bird Preserve, a new nature preserve in Lynn County. But first, Chris Lucan is living proof that a bite of cheese can change your life. For Chris, it was Escaru, a cheese from the Bosque region in Europe that made him want to become a professional cheesemonger. And now, 20 years later or so, he's become one of the most qualified cheesemongers in the country. In addition to being a certified cheese professional with the American Cheese Society, he recently became a certified cheese sensory evaluator, one of only 78 people in the country to hold both titles. Lucan works at the cheese counter at the Oakland Road Hy-Vee in Cedar Rapids, and he's with us today. Hello, Chris. Well, goodness. Good morning. Hello. Thank you for having me. Wow, that's a lot of words. (laughs) Well, you have a lot of titles now. (laughs) Where did your cheese journey start, Chris? Wow. Okay. Well, that's great, because I want to give a shout out to my uh, my, uh, store in Madison, Wisconsin, uh, Brennan's. Uh, especially food store, where I worked for many, many years during my time there. And then uh, from there, went to uh, Winona, Minnesota, where my high V career started. All right. And what, I mean, I, I mentioned this specific mm. cheese, but what yeah. made you decide that you wanted to, to really pursue a cheese education? Well, you're in that darn state of Wisconsin, and you got it. It's just in your blood. I mean, you if, you, if you've lived there or you go there to visit, you know, you're taking home cheese, and you just, all of a sudden, people know cheese. And this uh, specialty store was just being built, and uh, it was really cool that the owner of the store would buy all the entries to the U.S. Championship Cheese Contest, which is still held every two years, and also the World Championship Cheese Contest. So my learning curve was zero to 200 miles per hour, like whoosh, because you had everything in front of you to taste and sample and learn about. And uh, yeah, so I'd sold cheese for about a year when the world championships must have come along the second year while I was there. And I had this taste of this Basque region cheese, uh, an Oso Arati style cheese, 100% sheep's milk. And I hadn't had that. And I went, oh my, now there's, we need to learn. We need to really find out what's going on. So, so what kind of education do you need to have to be able to become a certified cheese professional? Well, probably for most people about a year, but for me about 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> I remember on the pre-interview with Danny, I said, you know, I'm a strong C student. I was like a football player. You, you give him the ball, he'll get three yards. You need one yard, he'll get three. You need 10, he'll get three. 
But in, in the cheese world, it just took me a long time to grasp. And the information was hard 20 years ago to come by, and maybe one, maybe all of it wasn't, you know, it was all myth or something. But it, now, 20 years later, there's a lot of great information. And uh, the American Cheese Society, who the certifications from, provide an immense amount of um, – you can go to their website, just lexicon and study aids. And I also want to give a shout out. It just came to me as I was driving here. Cheese State University. The public can go to that online and you can study and take quizzes and actually get a little certificate from it. Oh, wow. Uh, it's put on by the, uh, the um, oh gosh, I hope I didn't mess up the name. I want to say Dairy Farmers of Wisconsin. But uh, it's, a, it's a great website. A great That's a great tutorial there. And just wonderful books. I brought one there. Yeah. Liz Thorpe's The Book on Cheese, like the Bible. And it's just the way she does it. I've had customers buy that book. I show it to employees, and people come back and say, oh, my gosh. It's just how she lays it out. I wish you'd do a book on beer, a book on wine, a book on wool, a book on fly fishing. Please, <laughs> please, on fly fishing. So maybe that can be your next career. Um, so you also became a certified cheese sensory evaluator. So it sounds like the, the first title is a lot of book learning. A lot of book learning. And before you can take it, you have to have 4,000 hours behind the counter before you can take that first exam. So, okay. Um, yeah, so that's pretty intense. It, it was intense. Yeah, it really is. Anybody who's taken, I would think, would agree. It's, yeah. But the cheese sensory evaluator, that sounds like you have to have something beyond book learning. You have to have a sensitive palate, right? Well, I think you have to have uh, acclimated palate. So sometimes when I'm working with customers, if I say, if you knit or you work with wood, and you get a feel for the yarn over the years or the feel of the hardness of the wood or sanding it or cutting it. You know, um, as time goes by, you develop, uh, oh, that's that flavor, that's that aroma, and you start building a mental library, if you will, of mm -hmm. things. So, yeah, for, again, some people, I bet two, three, four years they could uh, be studying for that exam. Uh, for me, I don't know if I could have done it in the first two, three, four of my years, but over an extensive period of time, right? And then you're really smelling aromas because then you get to talk to them about customers, what you know to expect. You give them right. words to pick from. You know, would you know Parmigiano Reggiano when you cut into a wheel? If I break, well, we're actually going to break a wheel at all the high V's. Ooh, that's a that's a segue, isn't it? <laughs> this Friday at four o'clock, all the high V's are going to be cracking into a wheel of Parmesan. And if I have you customers come up close and say, okay. You know what you're going to smell? And they can smell it. And then all of a sudden, pineapple. Really? Pineapple. Huh. And see, you meal that memory, right? Because right. it shares a trait, right? Shares a character. So when you take this sensory exam, yeah. are you tasting? Are you smelling? What are you doing? Yeah. Oh, there's two parts to it. There's two parts. There's the adulterated milk part. And I believe there was like 51 um, aromas that you studied on. And so you'd get this milk. You can't taste it. You can only smell it, and you're sniffing, and you're like, oh, is that chive? Is that asparagus? Is that grass? You know, right? And then you, you narrow it down, you, or maybe one you smell is that old milk, sour milk, buttermilk, and you uh, come back to that one. And, you know, every time I was doing this, okay, this is going to be very transparent, right? I'm picking up my pencil to smell, and so by about the fifth or sixth one, I picked it up, and I, oh, I went, ah, oh, pencil, and I wrote down pencil. And, yeah. <laughs> Wait, no. Yeah, dumb. <laughs> 51 words. Never, for months you've studied, none of them were pencil. But in my brain, I was trying to like, you know, lead, shavings, like dried oregano, all these things. And that's, 
well, okay, I know what I mean by pencil. But that's so many aromas to try to sort through. I mean, we when we see people do a wine tasting or something like that, there's a palate cleansing. Yeah. How do you keep your nose fresh? Because oh, there's a saturation that goes on. This is really cool. Okay, so now I get to give Shabbat. See that book I put on your counter? That It yeah. just came out this year, and that's uh, called How to Taste by Mandy Nanklich. And she will tell you in there your own... Uh, like skin and stuff is your, it's bring you back to zero. So they talk about coffee so beans. So you smell your arm? Big, or? Yeah, it kind of brings you back, right? Like, isn't that crazy? Um, but you know what? We also, I know because we don't have a total lot of time, but we did this with Danny. Uh, the, <laughs> but there's that cheese there. Okay, yes, you brought And this is the one I said, secret. Three, three different samples Yeah, so the of one cheese. that has the little flecks in it, the little seeds, if you will. This one, the first yep, one. That's yep. the Marika. Okay. Howda, howda, gouda. Yes. Now that <laughs> <laughs> I know that howda is the, pronu- the the correct pronunciation, yeah. but people—that's a difficult way to communicate it, with people in Iowa. Well, no, right, right. So, so is spicy. <laughs> <laughs> so I would call this gouda cheese. That's okay. I say out of respect to her, I try and say it the right way, and I'm sure of. 20, 16 years I've known her, I still can't do it right. But let's go ahead and have you taste okay. it because uh, right. there's two. I just have a small a small bite here. Okay. And neither of these are in there, but the first one a lot of people get. And uh, and and so this is uh, the fenugreek seed. Okay. And uh, does anything come to mind as you're eating that? Because then sometimes it's just when the words are in front of you, you go, oh, yeah. Okay. Anything come to mind? <laughs> no, that's okay. No, okay, so no, if I, I say if I, I say if I, <laughs> if I say nutty, yeah, walnutty. Okay. Now you swallowed, and this is a big thing. Boy, this is one of my favorite things to talk about. Flavor is taste plus aroma, and we all nod our heads. Yeah, we've always known that. But wait, if I say you can't taste a cherry, you can't taste a walnut. Mm-hmm. Taste is sweet, sour, bitter, salty, umami. F- aroma is when you swallow. And it goes up your retronasal cavity to your brain. And do you not get a little hint of maple? Yeah. I do see that. Yeah. There. Yeah. There's almost a sweetness there. Yeah. So on a nice little slice of thin But slice I never would have been able to say that. Oh, I bet the next time you would. <laughs> Maybe. Two weeks from now. Maybe. Next year. Because it's in your brain. You're locking it right, up. Right. Right. Yeah. So I, we'll taste a couple more cheeses in a moment. But I want to ask you, you work for Hy-Vee and- Probably a lot of the people with these designations, the 78 highly qualified cheesemongers in the country, might more likely work for some of these small gourmet stores. Tell me a little bit about the the cheese world and working for a large grocery chain. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, because this is a great opportunity. Thank you, Hy-Vee. They paid a very large exam fee, which I would say is actually prohibitive for a lot of smaller cheese stores Mm -hmm. um, situations. It's not inexpensive, and it is a lot of time. And um, coming from that background, I'm just very thankful. Hy-Vee has a tremendous, I know this is a plug, but it's true. They have a tremendous training program for their cheese specialists, tremendous. um, Kara Simon at the university that we have, right? It's it's no joke. It's big, and it's you have to do all three levels before they let you take the CCP exam at Hy-Vee. So, um, so predominantly, there's also uh, big stores around the country that have sent people to do this, the two exams. Um, and there are people that, there's an author, I didn't bring his book, I'm sorry, Gordon Edgar. He's, he's written two books. He doesn't have the title because 
it's not in his what he I, he has a reason why, but right. it's, it's still he he participates it's fully a, with the there are a lot American of barriers. Cheese Society as okay. a judge and whatnot. So, um, yeah, it's it, I always think we're a little store, the cheese shop within the store. Okay, you know because uh, it's to have some rapport, some tastings, pairings, and uh, it just sets us apart. So tell me what else you brought here. This there's a, a looks uh, like a is this a yeah, harder cheese yeah, here? Okay, so. Uh, Danny asked me favorite cheese, right? And I say, my answer always is I have 10 top five favorites. Okay. <laughs> you have three dogs. You have three number one dogs. Right, right. All right. So this is our country's highest awarded, most awarded cheese. It's made a couple hours away in Dodgeville, Wisconsin. It is summer milk only. That's why it has that beautiful golden color. Okay. The, the chlorophyll, the mm-hmm. beta carotene from the grass, right? And um, it's pasture fed only. Pasture-fed means one thing. Grass-fed can mean a lot of things. This is pasture-fed. And uh, we talk for 15 minutes at a class when we talk about this cheese. Okay, so it's really a testament to the French word terroir, taste of place. Right. So a question I got asked recently by uh, um, an interviewer for a, a newspaper article was, can you identify cheese like where it's from? You know, what part of the world it's from? Cheeses that I've had, I, I don't think you could ever fool me on this cheese. And that's exactly Andy Hatch, the cheesemaker, wants you. It's his cheese. Well, it's very flavorful. I have no idea. You have to tell me what I'm eating. <laughs> so in the world of things, it was based on a French cheese, like an Alpine cheese, mm-hmm. a Beaufort, it's known as. So so when I put it in a category of like, let's say, Gruyere, that gets people to like the right place. Right. Okay? It's not cheddar. It's not Parmesan. It's not Swiss. It's not Gouda. So we get you in the right family of cheese. And... You know, he, he'll make it at different ages. You've got a beautiful 15-month aged and just a lot of that, uh, it's raw milk. It's farmstead, as was the, the previous cheese, the, the fenugreek, closed herd. Their cows, they feed them, they care for them, they milk them, they make the cheese, and they age it all on the farm. So, like, the, that adds up to... Well, it's, it's an incredible cheese. It's, it's inc- so yeah, awesome. flavorful. Awesome. Just incredibly flavorful. Um let me ask you a question about raw milk, though. Yes. Because I, I remember hearing that, you know, it's a frustration for cheesemongers in the United States that they can't sell some of the best cheeses in the world because of laws about importing cheese made with raw milk. Tell me how that okay. works. So that is limited to cheeses that are aged 60 days and under. So what we in our country we'll call brie style cheese which is soft under cheese, the yeah. under the uh, umbrella of soft ripened cheese <clears throat> mostly and so we do sell you you've had two raw milk cheeses right there your first two cheeses because they are aged over 60 days okay so it's just those young ones and they're very different i mean they're very one you've ta- if you've been to Europe or been to where you can have them or had them smuggled in. I don't know, but no, did I say? Can we say? That? <laughs> we cannot. <laughs> anyway, no. no. Uh, but, but, but I will tell you, you that them, the first time then... the first time I traveled to the United Kingdom, we were shocked by how good the cheeses that we could afford were. Like we'd go to a grocery store and you'd just buy run of the mill cheese, and it was wildly better than what I would have paid for, you know, at my local grocery store. Now, I'm I'm not very educated in the, the ways of this, but it does feel like cheese has gotten better in the United States since then. Oh, spot on, right? Spot on. 20 years ago, right, there was a handful of artisan cheesemakers um, and accessibility to good milk, high-quality milk, whether it be goat or cow. And, and still today, uh, sheep is 
not a large commodity milk, but we have some beautiful cheesemakers making sheep's milk cheese. Yeah. And some great cheeses being made in Iowa. They don't make oh. it all in Wisconsin. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's hard for Bucky Badger here when you're going to tell Custrianos one's made in Iowa. <laughs> but, so, no, but yes, you're right. Chris, we're gonna we're gonna run out of time. Um, right. So I, I do want to ask you for some advice. Obviously, you are at your high V store. You are giving advice. You've yeah. got labels on the products, telling people this little, is one yeah. of my favorites and, and things and like that. And but for people who don't have access to a cheesemonger of your stature, do you have some advice for us okay. when we go shopping? How do we All pick right. out a great cheese? So quickly, we'll do this one: this Liz Thorpe Book of Cheese. Okay. Really, I, I, I can't plug it enough that it's that good for uh, just for, I mean, I've got 80, 90 different books on cheese. Honest goodness. Yeah. And that was the first one I would pick out for you. And then I'm going to tell you about, a, um, uh, what do you call her? Uh, she writes emails. You can get our newsletter, Janet Fletcher out of Berkeley. Um, okay. You're going to learn so much and read her back stuff. All right. So we need right. to get cheese educated and then we can make better yeah, and choices. And then talk to your cheesemonger and you're going to find a lot of great ones at Hy-Vee. I mean, really, there's a lot of, we've got a, quite a number of CCPs, yeah. And uh, in Marion and uh, I know down here in Iowa City, I get talked about a lot about, a, uh, I believe his name's Chad. Yeah. So. All right. So, and we need to be a little bit adventurous. Yeah. Ask for a taste. Yeah. You know, because that's the way, right? If you don't have a back, if you don't have a baseline. To be able to taste it and, yeah. And you've been teaching cheese classes? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. That's fun. We're back into it now post-pandemic, and we just did one last Saturday. We had 49 people. How wow. fun was that? Yeah. So fun. Well, two of them sat outside, but no, <laughs> we didn't make them sit out. But this coming, uh, nope, it's going to be now we changed the date because we, so February 24th, it's uh, tasting and talking cheese, focus on cheddar, you know, how to present it, how to, t- you know, what to look for. We did like eight different cheddars, eight different, and there, are there eight different cheddars? I bet there are more. <laughs> <laughs> now you're on the right track. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you're bringing in, you're letting people taste cheeses and and really learn some of the things that you've learned. Yeah, well, that's the deal, right? That's the deal. Is um, my adventure, the cheese adventure, from all that tasting of cheese, and now that's kind of what I'm doing. I I uh, gone to school for teaching, and I guess I ended up doing it. Um, but yeah, so if if anybody's interested in that class, just contact the Oakland Road store. Uh, either through, you know, just con- calling the store and asking for Chris, leaving your name and number, and I'll get back to you. All right. And I see many more cheese classes in yeah, your future. Yeah, All right. We we have literally 30 seconds. Oh. What is your last cheese? Oh, yeah. Brought? So great, because this takes 30 seconds to eat. So oh, good. This is the one that I always ask customers, do not chew. Just put it in your mouth like it's a Jolly Rancher cheese right. candy. Then just you're going to have sit. to tell me what it is, and because it, I'm going to have to back announce you, and then I'll eat it as soon as we're off the air. But okay. what is this cheese? So this is a 14-year-age cheddar, and the reason I ask people to do that is because what happens? One, time slows down. You didn't just pop it in your mouth, chew it, and it's gone. So you're literally, and as you're sucking on it, right? It's gonna, you're, it's coating your mouth, you're breathing, you're smelling it, and then when you go to pair it with a kombucha, a cider, a wine, you're gonna get a true pairing. All right. Well, Chris Lucan, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much. Thank you, really, for having me. Thank you. Chris Lucan is a certified cheese professional with the American Cheese Society and more titles as well. He works at the cheese counter at the Oakland Road High V in Cedar Rapids. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. 
It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Retired farmer Ray Jean Kilberger has made a longtime dream come true and given residents of Lynn County a new nature preserve to enjoy. It's the Lynn County Bird Preserve. The Ray Jean Kilberger Foundation donated 83 acres of land that used to be Kilberger's family farm and also donated funding assistance to acquire another 57 acres of neighboring woodland. The land will be open to hiking and exploring and archery-only deer hunting in season. It also features amenities like, or will feature amenities, like a restroom, open-air shelter, and benches. And the land houses Stony Point Schoolhouse, a one-room schoolhouse where Kilberger was once a student. Ray Jean Kilberger is 86 years old and is very excited to see this dream come together. She's on the line with me now. Ray Jean, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. And you grew up on this land with your grandparents. Tell me a little bit about the farm. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. We This farm that I'm on was owned by my father's side of the family. Uh, for many years, and then uh, my gra- my grandpa had died, and my grandmother was losing it on that side of the family. And my birth dad came to the grandparents that were raising me, my mother's side, and said, would you please buy it so that she will have enough money to buy a house in town? And Ma and Pa thought about it, and they said yes, that we they would purchase it. And so that's how I came on to it. Okay, so there's a lot of family history in this farm. And you yourself were a farmer. Did you farm on this land? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Um, I did the field work and and I raised livestock. Sheep was my main um, activity. I had cattle, but uh, I I was a very prominent sheep producer. Wow. And you raised sheep for 50 years? Yes. (laughs) All right. So I'm sure a very prominent uh, sheep farmer um and and you actually only stopped raising sheep just a couple of years ago right yes Mm -hmm. where did the idea to donate this land to lynn county come from well when seminole valley park opened up across the river from us uh this sunday morning my dad said to me and I was raised by my grandparents, but Pa said to Mother and I, he said, you know, after we get done with breakfast this morning, I want to go over and see this Seminole Valley Park. I want to see what this is all about. So we drove over and we parked close to the river and we got out and we walked and walked around and looked it all over. And excuse me, then when we got back up towards the river, Pa pointed across the river to our ground and he said, I want our ground to be this too someday. And I looked at him and I said, I'll do the best I can to support this. Wow. So your grandpa wanted this land to become a park or a nature preserve. And you and he had that conversation about 50 years ago, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Wow. And did you always keep that in your mind through all the years that that this was the plan someday? Yes. As... As time went on, I mean, farmland is incredibly valuable in Iowa. Did you have a lot of offers to sell the farm? Yes, I did. Many offers. And then, excuse me, then a developer come along and he wanted to buy it to develop it. And I said, well, it's not going to happen. I'm not selling. 
how did you start this relationship with the county and talk to them about turning this into a nature preserve? Well, it went way back uh, when Morgan Creek for see Morgan Creek Park is on the land that my former aunt and her husband owned. And we used to go over there a lot and uh, they wanted that to be a park. And so Aunt Luella um, instigated all the things that they needed to do to get Morgan Creek Park to be what it is today. And so uh, I thought, well, you know, this is what they wanted and this is what my folks wanted. And so this is the way it's going to be. Can you tell me a little bit about the land? I'm I'm having a hard time imagining it. I know that this is a nature preserve, but it was also a working farm. Tell me a little bit about the different ecosystems that, that are present in the land. Well, the bottom land butts right up to the Cedar River. And when it doesn't flood, that's a tremendous crop area. You get very, very good crops from it. And then uh, you go up in the hill and, and uh, that's a nice area of trees and so forth. And up there, we, my mom and I, we always picked nuts up there because mother cracked lots and lots of nuts. And then over here, uh, up the roadways behind me is where we have uh, 20 acres uh, that's divided off in acre lots where people can build. However, I've only, my, my dad sold two lots and I have never sold any more. I don't want to sell them. I don't want neighbors. I understand completely. So as as the nature preserve comes together, folks from Lynn County are working on restoring some of the native ecosystems? Yes. Yes, they are. Tell me a little bit about this adjacent land, because you also helped to make it possible to acquire 57 more acres that will be part of the nature preserve that that were not part of your farm. Tell me about that land. Well, it uh, the owner of the land, uh, she was a girlfriend of mine, Elaine Dice, and um, for well, her maiden name was Curtis. And her folks had came out from town and and uh, moved out here. And of course, they when they first moved out here, they didn't know anything about farming. And uh, my dad and I, we'd meet Mr. Curtis up in the timber because he really didn't know how to build fence. And they had cattle, and we had cattle, and so Pa showed him how to build fence, and we worked with him, and and we became very, very close friends. And uh, the grandkids today, I I see the one grandson frequently, and the other one, he has a different way of life, and so I don't see him very often. So when it was time for them to sell the land, they came to you first? Yes, Mm mm-hmm. So there's there's a lot of cultural heritage going back on this land. Um, I also want to talk about the school. Stony Point School is now on the land as well. And you went to this school. Can you tell me a little bit about it? Uh, when we moved here in 1948, I completed 7th and 8th grade at Stony Point School. And um, prior to that, my other, my birth dad, he, uh he went to Stony Point School way, many, many years before. And so um, and then, of course, like I said, the folks bought this from my other grandma and, and we went here and I went to Stony Point. And then, of course, I can't remember the exact year it closed. But uh, then I and of course, before it closed, I went on to Roosevelt because Stony Point only went as far as eighth grade. Right. And 
how many students would you say were there when you were there? I think 23. Okay. So this is a one-room schoolhouse. And you were the only student in your grade? Yes. Yes. Now, one of the things I'd like to share with you is we had a student by the name of Johnny Merstick, who was very, very handicapped. And this was the first school, as I understand it, in Lynn County, where we had a teach-a-phone. Now, it was like a little small radio that sat on the teacher's desk, and um, we could hear everything that went on in the Merstick's house, and they could hear everything that went on in schools. And Mrs. Jadel, she wanted us to be quiet and behave big time. <laughs> um, and, and that's the way Johnny came to school. All right, so he was and, getting an education at home, but it was coming from the schoolhouse. Right. Mm-hmm. That seems pretty high tech, especially for a school that didn't have any running water. Well, <laughs> that's the way it was. <laughs> How did you guys get water? Uh, we went to the Davises, which would have been uh, not quite a quarter of a mile away, and we carried our bucket of water to school every morning. We went and got it and brought it to school, and and as the teacher said, we had to. We all washed in the same wash basin. Uh, in the same water. Now, if we any disease should have spread, it should have spread then. Right, right. I'm sure you guys were very good at saving all the water that you would need. And right, you did have electricity in the school, though. Yes, we did. Mm-hmm. And we had heat. That's really nice. But as one of the older students in the school, you were partially responsible for that heat. Yes, um, I'd go down. Uh, or one of the, there were three of us that were older. Uh, one of us would go down and put a log on the fire, and uh, then come up and get back into school class. Wow. So when did you first start thinking about trying to preserve Stony Point School? Well, it was kind of always in the back of my mind. I wanted it preserved, and then when they talked about uh, they didn't know what they were going to do with it and so forth, why. I think I stepped forward at that time to say, you know, I, I really am interested in this very much. And then as time progressed, why then I pursued it even more. You spent several years trying to get the school, but the people whose land the school was on were kind of uncomfortable with that. Yes, very definitely. So when you finally got the school, you moved it from their yes. property. How far did you have to move it? Um, let's see, it would be a mile and a quarter around the road. What kind of shape is the school in now? Um, it's, we got to put a new floor in it. And um, it really, is, on the outside, it's in very good shape. Um, I'm trying to think, did I just put a roof on it? I, I think I did. I just put a roof on it here not very long ago. And we're trying to get it all back to the way it originally was. So are you getting in touch with old students to see if they have any of those artifacts? I haven't contacted anyone. They've all contacted me. Oh, wow. Not all of them, but many of them have contacted me. They, they've got things from the school, and they said when I get it done, they'd like to put it back in the school. Oh, wow. Why is it so important to you to preserve this piece of history? Well, you know, lots of times years ago, students didn't go any further than eighth grade. I mean, you know, you didn't go on like we do today, 12th grade and, and college and all. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I felt we got a very good education from it. 
I mean, not only book learning, but just plain learning everyday living. I mean, how many kids fire a fire today or <laughs> know how to carry water or, you know, all the things yeah. and wash all all in the same wash basin and all that kind of stuff. And it, look out I, for the younger students and right. do a lot of independent learning because you were the only kid in your grade. <laughs> right. Very true. Yeah. And I think a lot of kids could learn a lot from it today. Yeah. So are you... Are you hoping that this this part of the land, that this will feel like a museum and, and maybe school classes can even come out and spend a day and experience what a one-room schoolhouse was like? Yes, um, and they already have. Last summer, some of the schools came, or some of the classes came out. Oh, nice. They brought them by bus and they came out and toured and so forth. Wow. So as this nature preserve is coming together, a lot of the land will be restored to the native ecosystems that that would have been there before your family farmed this land. There will be hiking trails. There will be benches. There will also be uh, an open-air shelter. Am I right that that open-air shelter is named after your grandparents? Yes, it is. Mm Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. What does that feel like to be? And, and the whole place is named after your grandparents because their last name was Bird. So it's not yes. just about birds. It's it's about a family name as well, although I'm sure birds love Bird Preserve. Um, how does that feel to be able to put your grandparents' name on this land and invite people to come and, and enjoy it and learn on it? Well, like I say, this is what they wanted and there was never any hesitation in my mind about it, that this is the way it was going to be. Most of the land will be undeveloped, but there will be some of those amenities. It's not a park, it's a preserve, but there will be a restroom and there will be this open air shelter. Was it important to you to to make this kind of a, a multi-purpose place where, where people could do a lot of different things on the land? Yes. I just wanted the people to to be able to come out and walk over it and just enjoy and and be in the great outdoors. As you have watched this process, is there anything about it that has surprised you? Not really. It's exactly what you imagined. Right. Mhm. That must feel so good. How how are you feeling about it? Well, I'm I'm pleased that I'm alive to be able to see it come together and come together the way my family wanted it. It's incredible that you have kept this goal in mind for 50 years and that you are making it happen. That's a, that's an incredible achievement. Thank you. What do you want people to take away from their visits to... Well, I think one of the things that is important to me is when you come in in one-room school... And you know there's one teacher, eight grades, and so forth. And today, I mean, look at how schools are today. They're so different. I mean, one teacher for one grade or just one subject and so forth. Um, To know that back then, how did these kids all get along and keep quiet so the teacher could teach? I can't answer that question. That's I, I suppose nobody, you lived it, so maybe you know, but I'm sure a lot of people ponder that and think, I have no idea how that worked. And Mrs. Chadle did a very good job of it. Wow. 
I hope something on this land will also be named for you. Is that part of the plan? No, no, no. I don't want my name on anything. Why not? Well, it's, I want my folks honored, not me. I'm just carrying out what their wishes were. For the, and, you know, if we could walk across the river, we could go over to Seminole Valley Park. Wow. The place where your, your grandpa had that vision and thought, yep, yeah, this is what I want for my land. Well, Ray Jean, thank you so much for sharing your story with us and for this incredible gift for the public. Thank you. You're welcome. I just hope they can all, people can come and enjoy it. We've been talking about the Lynn County Bird Preserve. Ray Jean Kilberger and the Ray Jean Kilberger Foundation donated 83 acres of land that used to be Kilberger's family farm and funding assistance for another 57 acres of neighboring woodland. And the public will be able to enjoy hiking, exploring. There will be archery-only deer hunting in season. There'll be an open-air shelter and a wonderful place for families to visit, including Stony Point Schoolhouse, a one-room schoolhouse where Kilberger was once a student. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News.